All right, take your Bibles if you would, and let's turn once again to the book of James. This is our second lesson in in the book of James, and we are trying to get the big picture, yet go slow enough that we can uh, gain as much instruction as we possibly can from God's Word. James has a, a simple theme. It's just practical Christian living. And, and the, uh, as we go through the book of James this time, um, we are making the theme of our study the work of the Christian life. How our Christian life ought to work. I mean, I, I like mechanical things and... Uh, uh, one of the things about mechanics is if everything is in place, it will work. Uh, if you have an automobile, you have an engine, if you're getting spark, uh, an electric system is working, your fuel system is working, the uh, lubrication, the compression, your, your engine is going to run. If it doesn't, it's a computer malfunction. But... Uh, in the old days, before there were computers, engines were, were very, very simple. You smelled for gas, you, you checked for a spark, and uh, if you had compression, if, you, if your engine was turning properly, it, it would run. And uh, your faith ought to work. We, we live in a world where people deny the power of faith in God. They, they talk about how that, uh, um, uh, I guess the most glaring example a few years ago, that uh, fraudulent, uh, I, I, I think she claimed to be a Harvard professor or something, released uh, the week before the Easter that we found Jesus' tomb. Uh, some of you might remember that. Uh, everything about it, they found a tomb in the land of Israel with the name Joshua on it. Uh, uh, how many of those might there be, my friends? Uh, and, of course, everything that she claimed to be true was a complete fabrication. It had already been disproven half a dozen times by people of reputation, but... She wanted to make a name for herself, and so the week before Easter, and you had uh, the quote-unquote Christian world going, Ah, Jesus' tomb, and this really bright bulb comes out. A uh, We call him Minister, because he claimed to be a preacher. Oh, even if they found the bones of Jesus, it wouldn't change my faith. Well, that's because you don't have any. Uh they will not find the bones of the Jesus of the Bible because he is resurrected. The entire scripture is there, is about, is wrapped around that fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, someone says, oh, what, what if they do find? They're not going to find because if they could find it, let me promise you, those high priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees that gave all that money to the Roman soldiers to say that he had stolen the body, if they knew where the bones of Jesus 
were, all they would have had to do is produce a body and Christianity would have ended right then and there. Didn't happen. Because there was no body to produce. Faith in Jesus Christ ought to work. That's why it tells us to rejoice when we fall into diverse temptations. To count it all joy. Now, again, the, the term is fall, so don't go looking for them. Uh, don't go playing in traffic and then say, Oh, God has got to heal me from all of my injuries. Uh, God didn't ask you to go play in traffic. Amen? Uh, let's, let's be careful about those things. And, you know, yet every one of us, when adversity comes our way, by the way, I, I wanted to give you an update that I forgot about. Talked to Bob Cook this week, and uh, so far, no infection. And so that is an answer to prayer. He had his knee taken out for six weeks, getting rid of the infection. They just put it back in. And he should be, he, just, he said, I'm going to call you. You're supposed to call me today. I don't have any calls. So that's probably a good thing, meaning Bob probably came home from the hospital today. And uh, he'll be in therapy for another four to six weeks. And then, Lord willing, he'll be coming into church. So you keep Bob in prayer if you would. Certainly he has gone through a very difficult time. If we get to the point to where we begin accusing God of being anything less than good, that is going to bring about a situation called double-mindedness. And you're not going to be able to serve God. Don't, don't expect to have your prayers answered if you're double-minded. This is what the scriptures say here. What is the cure? The cure is wisdom. You ask God and he'll give it to you. And so we get down here to verse 8 and we pick up a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. But the rich in that he is made low because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perishes. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Now, I've called our lesson tonight, The Bible Attitude Towards Station and Blessing. These first few verses is talking about your station in life. Now, it's a little unusual. The first part is pretty standard procedure. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. Now, many of the early Christians were of the class of people that would be considered low degree. Uh, slavery was huge in the Roman Empire. And, and we mean chattel slavery where people were literally bought and sold like you would... Uh, work animals or tools in a toolbox. Uh, and some of these people who were slaves to other people got saved. We read through the letters that Paul wrote and that Peter wrote. And we have Onesimus 
who was a runaway slave of Philemon, who was the pastor of a church. And Paul is writing back to him now. Oh, that, that's a terrible thing. I was looking through some thing. Uh, it was just a list of things. And it said, another Puritan father that owns slaves. And it had the name there and was trying to uh, dismiss the Puritans as wicked people. Uh, we've got plenty of reasons to dismiss Puritanism without having to go to slavery. Amen. Uh, slavery as it is was part of the society of the day. And right here, James is telling them, listen, if you find yourself in a position where you're actually owned by another person, the moment you get saved, you go to heaven just the same as the free man does. Just the same as the king does. Jesus Christ has made you worthy to be accepted in the palaces of heaven. Far better than in the household of Caesar. Amen? And it says here that the brother of low degree should rejoice because his station in life, his poverty, his lack of personal freedom is no longer a hindrance to his service for God. See, many people spend their whole life being a slave to poverty. They cannot earn the money that they would need. And we're not talking about what goes on here in the United States, okay? That's, that's a whole different scenario. We're talking about many parts of the third world where you go out and you labor honestly 12, 14 hours, and you cannot get enough food to feed your family. A great portion of the world lives in that situation. But when you get saved, guess what? You don't have to spend your life worrying about all of these things. You can trust in God. Uh, There's a connection here. Back to the very beginning of the book. Rejoice when you fall into diverse temptation. Poverty comes right in there. Uh, having difficult circumstances, that, that's right where it is. I can take where I am and rejoice in the Lord and walk forward serving the Lord. But what's the next verse say? You see, there's a connection here. But the rich. Okay, wait a minute. The, the low degree, he can rejoice in that he is exalted, but why would the rich man rejoice in that he is made low? But that's what it tells us here. It says, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. Now, please don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever just sat and daydreamed or fantasized about being rich. Somebody giving you a million dollars or uh, it's hilarious. You listen to some of the old radio shows. I I have some and and they'll talk about committing the crime of the century for $20,000. You're sitting there going, they won't even buy a car today. 
Uh, and they're talking about living for the rest of their life. And in 1940, if you had $20,000, you could buy any house on this street. Today, if you had a million dollars, you couldn't buy anything on this block. Isn't that crazy? It's all relative, isn't it? But what would happen to you if all of a sudden someone just walked up and handed you a check for a million dollars? You want me to tell you what would happen to you? Your entire life would be changed because now your life would be about taking care of that million dollars and ensuring that all the people that are out there that want to steal it from you, uh, including the IRS, I mean, excuse me, sorry, uh, all the people out there trying to take it from you, you're, you're now going to be trying to protect that. You know why the rich could rejoice in that he is made low? Is because just as the poor can be held in prison by their poverty, so the rich can be held in prison by their wealth. If you don't take care of it, you're going to lose it. You know what? When I get saved, I could let Jesus take care of it for me. And you know what that does to me? That, re, that makes the rich person low. We, we live in a world where we have, uh, I used to affectionately refer to our former mayor as Mommy Mayor. Uh, uh, mayor Bloomberg, he was just so absolutely concerned with the amount of calories that were in your sodas and and the salt content, I, I don't know if I've told you the story, probably have, but uh, there was a, um, a, a very big uh, bar mitzvah plan somewhere in the city, hundreds of people that were tens of thousands of dollars of food, and something happened, and they had to cancel the event. And so the family that had already paid the caterer for all the food, the food had been prepared, calls the city of New York, shelters, and says, listen, we've got food for several hundred people here, catered by one of the highest and best caterers in the city, and it's all free. And you know what they were told? We can't accept that food. The sodium content's too high. That, that's what I heard via the radio. I don't have any problem believing that, do you? We have these people who, because they are quote-unquote wealthy, because they are smarter than the rest of us, they want to live our lives for us. You know what the Bible says? There is no place for that kind of person in service for God. Aren't you glad about that? You see, someone who wants to torture you for their own sadistic pleasure will only go so far. 
But someone who believes that they can live your life better than you will torture you until you can't stand it any, uh, beyond any ability to endure. Uh, that is nothing new to our society today. It was happening here. And James says, listen, you rich people, you rejoice in the fact that you're low. That you're no longer in charge of everything. That you no longer have to be... Uh, captivated by your possessions. You no longer have to be Mr. Do-Good running around. You let Jesus order your life just like the poor man lets Jesus order his life. You've got to understand that everything you do and all of the good that you can do is just a passing fancy. Just like the flower that fades with the sun in the heat of the day. He says, for, it, for the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perishes, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. You know, people take tours of the mansions of the rich and famous of the last generation. And, I mean, if you want to uh, go up and down the Hudson River, uh, you go up in the Poughkeepsie area in New Hyde Park, you have the Roosevelt uh, presidential mansion and all of those things, FDR. Uh, I've never gone there. have no real intention. I'm not really interested in that Roosevelt at all uh, because of his godless world perspective. But you can see his house uh, if you just go up uh, short of the Tappan Sea Bridge is Lindhurst, which is one of the few Gothic revival mansions built in the late 1700s and then added to in the 1800s and was still lived in by, by the family right up until the 1960s. It's a museum now. You can walk through the place. The grounds are just absolutely fabulous, uh, just a, uh, a beautiful place. But does anybody even know the name of the family that you last owned the property? And even if I said the name Jay Gould, would you know who he was and what he did? Not unless you'd been there and went through the tour and, it, oh, okay. He was one of the crooked railroad tycoons. Uh, that's where he made his money. He was called a robber baron for a reason. Uh, and listen, the Bible says the rich are going to fade away. What we need to understand. I don't know how many times I've said it. I don't know any better way to say it. When you get saved, Life ceases to be about you and starts being about Jesus. And the low can rejoice because he is exalted in Jesus Christ. And the rich can rejoice because now he is nobody special except in Jesus Christ. James is going to continue this theme through the book. When we get to chapter 2, he's going to talk about respect of persons is not part of our faith in God. You know, one of the things that we have 
as a pastor, as a church, we have worked on this. We, we do not have two tiers of believers in Jesus Christ. You only get saved one way. That's the Bible way. And by the way, you only live one way. That's the Bible way. I, I don't need to worry about the person sitting beside me if they're just barely making it or if they're very wealthy. What I need to do worry about is serving Christ together in the church. By the way, would that be a natural result of losing your double mind and being single-minded? You see, there's a reason those verses are right there where they're supposed to be. Because God is trying to teach us. James is bringing a message here to us. And then we get to verse 12. Now, we started in verse 2. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And if you cannot count it all joy, the answer is in verse 8 here, I believe it is. Verse, I'm sorry, verse 5. You lack wisdom. You ask God and He will give you wisdom. He will cure your double-mindedness. And you can rejoice wherever you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we get to verse 12. And it says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. When lust, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. How many of you want to have a happy life? You want to be, the Bible word is blessed. So, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they that mourn. I didn't get them quite all in the right order there. But uh, here, James is telling us, listen, you have to set your attitude when adverse circumstances come into your life. You've got to understand that God is working and that you can trust God to let patience have her perfect work in your life. That you can be ready to meet God when it comes time to meet Him. If you can't see it that way, if the circumstances that you're dealing with overwhelm you and you are falling prey to the temptation to blame God for doing something less than good, you lack wisdom. God will fix it if you ask Him for wisdom. He'll solve that double-minded problem. It's not about you. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor. Remember the rich young ruler. What did Jesus tell him he lacked? He says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. He couldn't do it. 
But I will tell you, I, I praise God. I've, I've met some very, very rich people who have been saved and served the Lord with, it, with their lives. In fact, if it had not been for such an individual, humanly speaking, God touched his heart, sent us that check. We were only $150,000 short on our second payment. And he touched one man's heart who just happened to have $150,000 he wanted to give to the Lord's work. I'll give it there. I'm very happy to receive that. It it met our need. Uh, And yet, if I want to have a blessed life, if you want to have a blessed life, here's what we got to do. Endure temptation. Now, I can ask you how many of you have fallen prey to temptation since last Sunday morning. Every hand goes up because we're sinners. We're sinners by nature, but we're also sinners by choice. Can you think of a time when you were in a very difficult situation where you were tempted to do wrong and God brought you through on the right side? Can you think of something like that? You know what you can say? I've seen some smiles stealing across people's faces because they're thinking of situations and they're saying, wow, yeah, God did that. That... That's what James said. Blessed. If you want a blessed life, don't worry about whether you're rich or whether you're poor. Get serious about getting through temptation on the right side of the temptation, meaning that we go through that time of testing without sin. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on this tonight, but sometimes the difference between a temptation to sin and a testing that builds your faith is what you do with the situation, is it not? Not always. But when you endure temptation, it gives you strength and confidence to face the next one. Now, let's look at the rest of the verse here. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. The crown of life is mentioned twice in our Bible. Once here. The other time is Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10 as Jesus is talking to the persecuted church. And he says, you be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Uh, Let me ask you a question. How can you be faithful to Jesus Christ unto death? By trusting Jesus. Amen. It's not you. We, we took care of you. Whether you're poor or whether you're rich, we took care of that. What we're talking about here is getting faith from God to serve Him till He comes. When we sin, what do we do? If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, 
There's a promise of reward. What's it say? To them that love him. Here we go. If ye love me, what? Keep my commandments. And this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. When, when we go through life and we find ourselves going, Oh, it is just so difficult to be obedient to God. We don't love him. We got a love problem. There, there are many people who have called themselves Christians down through the centuries whose only claim to Christianity is their works that they do thinking that they please God and nothing could be further from the truth. The only works that please God are the ones that He gives you the faith to do. And God will. He is intimately interested in giving you the faith that you need to endure temptation. It is God that wants to give you that crown of life. He has promised this crown to them that love Him. Now we come to verse 13. And it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. I can't tell you how many times I have heard this. It seems to be just a, a new ism that has sprung up, though it's nothing really new. Other people have believed it. Uh, but this thing, uh, you'll hear people say, uh, no, you don't confess your sins to God. Jesus forgave you all your sins on the cross. And so you don't need to worry about them. When you bring up your sin, you're... You are proving that you don't have the faith in God because He forgave you for all your sins. Now, if that makes sense to you, see me afterwards. Uh, because you're in deep trouble. Uh, that, that is nonsense. This was John speaking. If we, you know what? We includes the beloved disciple, John. If we confess our sins, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. But James is helping us understand something here. Temptation has a source, but it's not God. God doesn't tempt you. God didn't make you that way. I don't care what way you're talking about. God didn't make you that way. But the the human body has certain desires that are just natural and, and, yeah, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Hey, I have a propensity towards sin because I was born in the image of Adam. Now, I don't know about you, but this this one phrase here should be enough to give any person of anywhere near good sense to understand that Calvinism is a total farce. Because the God of Calvinism plans your sin. Because he has determined what every person will do and will not do. The Bible says that God cannot be tempted with evil 
And he does not tempt anyone to do evil. Where does it come from? I mean, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. By, by the way, do you think there's a connection between enduring temptation and having patience do its perfect work in your heart that you may be perfect and entire wanting nothing? Let me tell you, there's a connection. That's why it's right here in the passage. That God wants us to live for Him. And we are going to face temptation. By the way, temptation is not sin. But uh, I I can't remember. I read this in a, a little book somewhere years ago. I've forgotten the author and the title. But he said, Just because the birds of temptation fly over the nest of your life does not mean that they need to stop and build a nest and hatch their young in the tree of your life. Amen? You see, temptation to sin does not come from God. It comes from those desires that are in my life that are there because I was not born in the image of God. And so... When I am tempted, I'm drawn away and enticed. What happened to Eve in the garden? We've been through this. The devil says, God said you can't eat of all these trees. Look at all these trees. You can't eat of them. What does Eve say? Oh, no, we can eat of all the trees except one, and we can't touch that one. What did she just do? She added to God's Word. When you add to God's words, are they God's anymore or are they yours? You just broke the first commandment. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. You've made yourself a God. So, in just a few moments when the devil came back and said, Listen, if you eat of that tree, you're going to be just like God, knowing good and evil. Eve was already on board. They tell us, psychologists and psychiatrists tell us, that we do what we want to do. I don't need a psychologist to tell me that. We have 12 little ones growing up in the house. Some of them are already grown. And I'll tell you, every one of them. Uh, years ago, a psychologist, he called himself a Christian psychologist. That's kind of right up there with Christian rock and roll and good poison and uh, all of these other oxymorons that are out there. And he wrote a book called The Strong-Willed Child. I've not met a child that's not strong-willed. None of ours were that way. Maybe, maybe you have one. I, I used to. When uh, Morgan was very small, uh, she's uh, Brother uh, Bob and Becky 
Mac, their their little girl with Down syndrome, she's not little anymore. She's 20, what, 21. But it didn't take too long for even Morgan to exhibit a strong will. Every one of us does. And that will draws us away from God. And when we get away from Jesus... We then begin looking at what the world has to offer, and it starts looking good. You know, the world has a joke that they often use. Is how many how many beers or how many drinks does it take to make a guy look handsome or a woman look beautiful? Uh, and, and they use those kind of jokes all the time, but there's... As in most humor, there's some real truth in there. Things don't look too good until you get under the influence. How many of you have ever upbraided yourself for doing something dumb? Uh, just out, out and out stupid. Is it, am I the only one that's ever done that? I don't think so. I see some other smiles saying, we're with you, Pastor. Unfortunately. You know what happened? We allowed ourselves to be drawn away from the Lord. Other influences came in, and something that was once ugly and abhorrent now looks good. That's the way lust works. You see, in every lust is the seed of sin. In every temptation is the potential for sin. When I allow myself to relax my grip on the Savior's hand, by the way, read Philippians chapter 3, he's holding on to me a whole lot tighter than I'm holding on to him. Amen? But the simple truth is, I, I, relax, I allow myself to be drawn away, and all of a sudden things that once did not look good, all of a sudden look good. There's a process. Lust will conceive. It will give life to that dormant sin that is contained within it. And all of a sudden, sin takes on a life of its own. How many of you have ever tried to tell a lie? Only to have to cover it up with another one. And another one. And you know, we we train our police officers and people... They have a special group of officers that do interrogations and, and they ask the questions in certain ways and, and, and repeatedly. And they'll say, well, just tell me the story again. Something isn't gelling right now. And, and if you're fabricating, you're going to get caught. In fact, there was a judge the turn of the last century who was so well-versed in this interrogation process and breaking down false testimony, he said, when I retire from the bench, the first thing I'm going to work on is the Bible. And I'm going to prove to everyone that it's a pack of lies. He got saved. In fact, he even wrote a book called Jesus of Nazareth. They made it into a movie, which for Hollywood was the most respectful thing that they've ever made concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, you can't overcome the Word of God. But you will do what you want to do. If we would just be honest, no one ever loses their temper. They know right where they're throwing it. Isn't that true? We make up all kinds of excuses. But lust, when it hath conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. There's a pattern. And it holds true no matter what. How many people die every year? Because they're driving an automobile faster than they ought to be. Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands on the roads of the United States every year die. You know that speeding, I think, is arguably the most preventable cause of death in the United States. Why do we do that? Well, I've got to keep up with the traffic. That's my excuse most of the time. Uh, if you drive too slow, they'll just run over you. Um, wait a minute. Driving fast, especially in a car or a vehicle that's meant to drive fast. Driving fast in a church van just isn't cool. Uh it, it, it just, driving speed limit, that's fine. Buzzing down the road at 90 miles an hour in a 15-passenger van, that's not fun. That's just beyond stupid. But if you had a Mustang convertible with a big block and all of the add-ons, that, that, that just might be exhilarating. How many people die on, I call them crotch rockets, these motorcycles that's just nothing but engine with a seat on it. I mean, that's why my dad made me promise I'd never get on one of those things. And I've kept my promise. That's why I'm alive today. Because sin always brings this feeling of exhilaration, this something good is about to happen to you. Yeah, it's called death. That's the process. Then he says, do not err, my beloved brethren. You know what he's saying? Number one, there is no excuse for the Christian to sin. Why? Because temptation isn't coming from God. God has not preordained that I do sin. God has made a way that I can endure. It is... God has a greater interest in me getting through temptation on the right side than I do. He has promised me a crown of life. He's telling me that if I love Him, I'm going to obey Him. I'm going to get... Do not err! And the other thing James is saying here, don't get started. The psalmist put it this way, Standeth not in the way of sinners. You know what? You 
you might not be sinning. But if you're thinking about it, that's what lust is. And it's not going to be too long. You know, some people, quote unquote, get away with it. They have the, oh, so-and-so, he can just hold his liquor, he can drink all day and, and, and never be under the influence. That's not true. Nobody gets in a car and intends to go the wrong way on a highway and kill an entire family. But it's happened multiple times right here in our city in the last several years. You see, don't start. And then we'll wait on verse 17 till next time. But that's how you tell where the blessings are coming from. Every good and every perfect gift cometh down from above. God has given us a way to understand. There's How many of you have ever bought something that looked really good until you got home and then it broke? Didn't work. Well, guess what? God's not in that. There, there's a lot of theology that works the same way. It looks really good on the outside until you try to start living it, and then you find out that it doesn't work very well. That's not from God. You see, God has a cure for the double mind. He has a cure for the self-important important one. He has a cure for dealing with temptation. Because God wants me to be ready to meet Him. That's what life is all about. That's what this church is all about. I hope and pray that's the reason why you're here tonight. That you want to be encouraged and you want to be uh, directed to live obediently toward the Bible, to have a biblical attitude toward difficult times, toward temptation, toward an, a lack of wisdom on our part. God has the answers, and all God's people say, Let's pray.